Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Campbell A. Campbell. And I'm Jack King. On the show this week, Miles Morales returns to journey across the Spider-Verse, and I spoke to the film's Oscar-winning composer, Daniel Pemberton, about making music fit for a multiverse. American intelligence is questioned in reality, and on Film Club, it's espionage and animation with Paprika. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a White Lies podcast. So, Mr. Jack King, so lovely to have you back. What have you been up to of late? Oh, thank you so much. I think the last time I was on was for Remind Me. God. Um, well, I'm all like, I remember, last time you were on, Arsenal three. was doing very well. Yeah. So, uh, oh, yes. Well, you had to bring that up, didn't you? Um, <laughs> well, and Arsenal continues to do well. And then I stopped watching in early May, so I, I wouldn't know the, the, the thrilling climax that I missed. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, it's been wonderful, aside from football-related things. I was just on holiday in Rhodes at the time I would ordinarily be in Cannes, so I missed all of the filmic goodies there, but indulged myself in alcoholic goodies instead. Uh, you did a lot of reading there, actually, was, which was nice. Um, kind of, like, oscillated between some, like, YA pulp, like the, the book Red, White, and Royal Blue. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's the, an American author wrote a story about the gay prince of England falling in love with the gay son of the President of the United States. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's being adapted into a new film by Amazon at the end of the year. And uh, books That back. feels so Lucas Gage, don't they? doesn't it <laughs> yeah it has them all over. but no it's it's it was fun and like read some more kind of like uh, edifying material at the same time and yeah it's been good i think um we've we've had a, a curiously stuttering start to the year movies wise there are a couple i've seen that are yet to release like later on down the line which are really great which i obviously can't divulge here but you know, I, I, there wasn't much in terms of theatrical releases. I've seen the, most of them. There, there wasn't anything I would really, really loved off the top of my head. For some reason, jo- John Wick 4. Oh, God, is the Galaxy 3. I, I was a big fucking chill for that. Really liked it. Yeah. But Fast X, surprisingly fun also. We didn't cover it on the podcast because they were in Cannes doing um, much, much kind of highbrow stuff. I mean, not a good film, but a good showcase for perhaps why Jason Momoa should get to do more stuff. Yeah, I was actually in Rhodes when that film came out, so one I'm yet to catch up with, but I have heard wonderful things about um, our ex-Aquaman. It's the first Fast and Furious movie I've skipped in the cinema. <laughs> Man, you skipped it! Campbell, you are the biggest fast aficionado I know! Man, I'm in What can I say? Insane. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> What a sort of damning with faint praise thing to call Mr. Campley Campbell, who has so much expertise and you label him as the Fast and Furious aficionado. I do like Fast and Furious, to be fair. I wrote a whole essay about the Fast and the Furious. I've written two essays about it. For BBC Culture is the one I wrote, but there are tomes of scholarship out there under the, under the name Campbell Campbell. Let's, let's sing him, let's give him his dues. I contain multitudes. <laughs> well, I mean, you are also the animation expert, the, the resident <laughs> one, I think, for probably Little White Lies at the moment, and you're off to Annecy. Yeah. To hell uh, with Can. It's all about Annecy now. <laughs> I was saying yeah to the Annecy thing, not to the expert thing. That's very flattering. Yeah, I'm going to the Annecy animation festival that's mid-june just a solid week of hanging out with um animation nerds and students practitioners of those arts going to be a lot of work in progress stuff which i'm really excited for i think there's an unfinished cut of the upcoming teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem movie that's a lot of alliteration alliteration um, like it's at the top of your list cam uh it's not but i'm excited <laughs> for it it's kind of maybe one of the more high profile things that's showing and I'm interested because I don't think I've ever actually had gone to a screening that is just a full like mostly done print of an animated film. I've seen previews of like unlit and unfinished stuff like I did. I saw the opening sequence of Across the Spider-Verse last year, but 
it was um it didn't have complete lighting and some of the stuff was just like animatics so it'll be interesting to see that across like however long it is if that's the case i'm not quite sure what the details of the screening are but yeah it'll be fun and nice the atmosphere is very nice i was gonna say it looks like a gorgeous lookout from all of the pictures that I see, like invariably, it's when you and Raphael Montemayor, I, I guess you would just call him a friend of the pod, um, who also goes every year, I think, and the pictures look gorgeous. He, we've only, but we've both only been in person last year. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's now kind of our thing that we'll go every year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I think this year I'm just going to book for the next one, like right afterwards. Jesse Armstrong, Mike Wheeler, the disgusting brothers. No, no, <laughs> no. We must get Raphael on the pod. He's just such a brilliant uh, force of nature and, and, you know. Yeah, sorry, Cam, maybe we're kicking you off and, like, the next, all the animated stuff is going to be taken over by our, our wonderful friend in Scandinavia. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> the other animation expert. There's only room for one of you. We're going to, like, Thunderdome. This. <laughs> but, yes, we should move on to the long gestating sequel that uh, you first saw a little clip of in see a year ago and now is finally at the cinema screams it's across the spider-verse join our community of film lovers by becoming a little white lies member we receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of little white lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism search little white lies membership via your search engine and click through to our steady aq page for a detailed breakdown of the plans now on to the movies Miles Morales returns with the next chapter of the Spider-Verse saga, an epic adventure that transports Brooklyn's full-time friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man across the multiverse. He joins forces with Gwen Stacy and a new team of Spider-People to face off with a villain more powerful than anything they've ever encountered. But before we get into the film, I spoke to its Oscar-winning composer, Daniel Pemberton. Well, lovely to talk to you, Daniel. Congrats on the film. I loved it. <laughs> oh, thanks. Have you seen it then? Yeah, I saw it a couple of days ago and I'm going again tonight, I've got to say. Okay, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of exciting people are finally getting to see it. This is your second time going into the Spider-Verse, isn't it? So, <clears throat> was it, am I right in thinking that the first one was your first time you were doing an animated film? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah Spider-Verse was my first sort of major animated film, yeah. Like, is the, is, is the kind of task of doing it very different when you're working with animated? as opposed to a kind of live-action movie? Yes and no. There's things that, like, at the end of the day, you've got to kind of make something that feels... Like, every project I do, I try and make each film score feel, like, unique to that world. And so, you know, whether that's animated film, feature film, documentary film, TV series, they all have slightly different things within them, but, you know, the approach is often really the same. And with that film, you were kind of at least kind of grounded in like one single universe. So did you kind of have a sense of grounding it in like what that particular Brooklyn was like? Yeah, I mean, the first film was really all about Miles's. You know, the first film was so centred around Miles. And I think with the new, the new film, what's sort of kind of exciting and being really challenging is that we suddenly enter all these different universes and all these different characters each of which has to have their own sound and each of which has to all like work together coherently which is you know that was a huge challenge really yeah i wanted to ask you about gwen's world in particular because that's got such an it's just so stunningly gorgeous and then like there's she's obviously a drum player and that seems to come a lot into the music that we're hearing like there's a lot of percussion yeah so yeah with gwen i mean when I first came on this, okay, one of the things that happened really early on was they did a big presentation of directors just showing me all the different art styles they were, and approaches for each universe. And one of the things that I loved about Gwen's universe was just like how different the art styles seemed to be with the sort of watercolours and the sort of wash. So I wanted to make music that had a slightly dreamy quality to it, but then also reflected sort of roots in this band. You know, we kind of referenced a lot of 90s acts, like Mazzy Star, but then also kind of slightly poppy air sounds. And the core of it, she's a drummer. And, you know, a, a big part of this film is getting more Gwen's personality into the music. That she's also kind of going through such, like, emotional turmoil um, and the crazy action sequences and all of that. I mean, does that become very challenging that you're sort of trying to coordinate with, like, all of this frantic pacing and action, but then also kind of ground it in, like, she's really going through something very difficult? Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about that first big action sequence in the Guggenheim, you've basically got, like, punk rock drumming, you've got, like, 
uh, we introduced 2099, so you've got 2099's like Sound World, which is this sort of more abrasive techno sort of feel. We introduced Jessica Drew, who's got her own sound, operatic moments with him, culminating in all these different characters having to work together and their themes having to work together. And so, like, you know, I probably spent a couple of years on this project just sort of doing what I call R&D, like research and development, into sounds and themes that would all interlink and work with each other. So for me, everything has to connect within the universe. And, you know, this film, there's loads of sounds and themes that connect with the first film. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that thread that goes, but then it's kind of so fun when you get a change into something like Mumbatton and you can just hear, you can, I mean, you can see it, but you can also just hear how we've kind of made a shift. Yeah, I mean, that was a really fun world to do. I was really influenced by this record called Ten Ragas to Disco Beat, which is this like really groundbreaking Indian electronic record from 1982 which is this guy who basically made kind of almost invented acid house before and rave before acid house existed and it's just him making like indian music but on a roland 303 and it's a, it's a really you can find it on youtube it's a really mental record and if you know the time frame of when that came out it's really interesting because you know if you think acid house didn't really hit let's say UK till 87, 88. Yet someone was making records that had that vibe in India in 1982. Oh, that's amazing. Well, that, that's kind of the rest of my day sorted. <laughs> that, that deep dive down that rabbit hole. Yeah, no, it was fun because like, I was just trying to find, you know, like the way they've like reimagined all these different countries through the Spider-Man lens. It was like, you know, trying to think of this like futuristic looking Indian sound. And that record has always been one that I found really fascinating. And it's, it's nice to be able to pull on it as an influence for, uh, for I can never pronounce his name, Paravit Papachar. I can't say it. Someone will tell it properly. He's got a complicated name. Pav. We all call him Pav, basically. <laughs> but yeah, Indian Spider-Man. And i got to assume, you know, being English, like the idea of taking on Spider-Punk and being able to draw from kind of London and its punk scene was would have been fun. Yeah, yeah. Spider-Punk is obviously like, like one of my favourite characters just being from London. And it's nice to see London on screen in this one a little bit. So yeah, Punk's world is fun. And I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that will get expanded a bit upon in, in another film. Well, I mean, I guess there's absolutely nothing you can tell us about the next film. It's so, so much secrecy around it. Co- correct. And everyone, there's, everyone there's, we've got, there's a kind of informal pact between everyone who's worked on this project where everyone's like, no one wants to talk about the next film because everyone is so exhausted on this one. <laughs> this has probably been the most kind of intense filmmaking experience for, for everyone involved which hopefully you can see on screen but we only really finished it like about two weeks ago it has been like there was so much work and love and passion that's gone into this film because uh, what five years or so like since since the last one and like i think i was reading about the size of the team it's like approaching like a thousand people or something ridiculous yeah there's a lot of animators and artists the music team is me <laughs> uh, so i have quite a lot to do but you know i've i've got you know, we've got like amazing musicians on this. You know, we've got this guy, DJ Becky, who's come back on and he did the scratching in the first film. And so he's doing a lot of record, scr- he's doing all the record scratching in this new one as well. And, and that's been really fun because that's always, you know, Miles' world has always been steeped in hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. And to sort of take the art of turntablism and the film score has been one of the really fun things about this project. And so, you know, the, the sequence when we first meet Miles, you know, what was great was being able to just throw everything at that sequence. So anything's on screen, we're like, let's scratch it. So we were scratching felt tip pens, spray cans, car crash noises, fight punches. We were scratching a goose. It's like my favorite bit in the film is probably the fact that we record scratched a goose in this score. And towards the end of that sequence, it's a track called I'm Miles Morales. And listen to the last like third of that, you'll, you'll hear a long goose scratch record scratch solo god I, just, I think you can just see all of this kind of spirit on the screen though the fact that like every single person was just kind of creatively going for it i think yeah i think when you're working on a project where everyone is trying to push as far as they can at the boundaries of, of what cinema can be it lifts everyone else up and they every every other department wants to do the same you know everyone's all Almost everyone's trying to keep up with each other. Someone produces something great, everyone else can't be the one who lets the side down, you know. Certainly no, nobody did. I mean, I kind of, I, I wrote 600 words for my review, I think, and I, uh, I could have gone to 2,000 because there's just so many great details to dive into. But goose aside, do you have any other like creative moment that you're particularly proud managed to make it on screen? I mean, there's lots of like funny, like 
one of the things I love about the score is it's like is in the same way the film is so creative in like how it approaches visuals and art and framing is is trying to do the same with the music so you can go from like huge orchestras that we recorded at abbey road and air to like a whistle that i recorded in nunhead cemetery in peckham ages ago and i was like that that's it i don't even know nunhead cemetery but it's mm. like a really old cemetery in peckham and there's um i was just going through there one day and there's like a kind of mausoleum that had a uh, really great stone echo so i just recorded myself whistling mm. and then we uh resampled that and that's that's all over the train chase at the uh at the sort of last half of that i really like a lot of stuff towards the end of the film like when the stakes are really really big like mm. i like the train chase i really to be honest, i really love 2099's world because it, i got to play like in a in a big electronic world which i don't do that often and that sort of Sydney vision of the future of is that Sid Mead's is concept artist who they base a lot of that stuff on, but his stuff is is like kind of like loads of sci-fi films are based around his sort of artwork mm-hmm. and that sort of futuristic utopian vision of the future that's slightly also fucked up is really fun one to, to write musically and just kind of go mental on loads of synthesizers it, it, it was absolutely great because i mean you just you get into that world and it's so quickly established i think with kind of just the just a few visuals and the music like you do kind of understand exactly what this is <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is that often we're not in these worlds for very long and you've got to musically establish it like within five seconds, you know, and it's like buying six different film scores that all interlink, but it's one. Oh, well, we can only say thanks because I, I, I've had a lot of, uh, as they say, Marvel fatigue and it's just so exciting to go and watch this and just feel that like I'm watching so many people's like heart and soul on screen and like just so ambitious and just you know, clears the bar that you guys set with the first one, I think. Yeah, I think the thing really is like a, a lot of, you know, what you call Marvel fatigue is because often you go into cinema and you know what you're going to see before you even get there and you know what it's going to look like and you know what it's going to sound like. And so you've, all you're really doing is getting a meal you've eaten a bunch of times reheated. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes this film so exciting is that you don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know what it's going to sound like. And so that's when you get like really great cinematic moments when, when we when we all go and see or experience something new. And I think that's the kind of projects I try and work on where, you know, I can I can do something unexpected. And I try to do that through all the, the films I work on where you don't you, you don't know what it's gonna sound like. And this is an example of a project where you can just keep on pushing at the edges of, of what you can do in cinema. Yeah. I was kind of nervous coming into it, having loved the first one so much. So I, right. we I, were all we were all so nervous like doing <laughs> this project i think we all had so much anxiety that we knew because when i did that first film like what was interesting about it is you know everyone loves that first film now but when it came out people were a bit suspicious of it mm. and it's funny like you know i've watched it grow and grow and grow and i've always likened it to a band that has played loads of small venues all over the world and everyone feels like it's their band but now they're playing like Wembley Stadium and it's like it's got to be the best show ever and you guys didn't sell out (laughs) yeah yes exactly that's it we didn't sell out that's the best way of putting it oh well thank you so much for your time hope you managed to get some rest you got what wait how long till the next one nine months enjoy those nine months (laughs) yeah yeah I don't want to think about that yet oh sorry sorry to remind you but thanks so much for your time I really appreciate it that's okay All all right thanks so much nice to speak to you you too so, Camberley, like, you got... It's now been a year since you first saw the kind of tantalising first bit of footage. Um, it's been five years, I think, since the last one. Did the Across the Spider-Verse sequel disappoint? No. In some, in very minor respects, yes, which I'll get to in a little bit. But majority case, absolutely not. I think just from the jump, it's a lot more ambitious, than the last one which is nice because it is both thematically and like kind of artistically fighting back against resting on its laurels like it's expanding um its approach to animation in terms of like lifting comic book language from page to screen it's engaging more with that on a sort of background level where like the characters in the last film carried different art styles with them this time it's kind of embodied in the world around them and there's like this kind of lovely cross-pollination between all of them it's kind of just a big time sensory overload that i think i found very exhilarating 
it's just nice to see something that is so high profile now. Well, I mean, it's funny because the first one was it's kind of seen as like Miles is getting tossed on the pile with kids movies. And now it's kind of this worldwide sensation. But in that respect, it's so exhilarating to see something so large scale and high profile that has this kind of spirit of experimentation driving it so clearly, like even with a lot of kind of invasive, like kind of feels like execs putting their hands in the pie here, like in some instances, but even throughout any of that, like it kind of just wiped any cynicism I had away almost immediately in the following scene because it'll be some mind-blowing image like right afterwards so yeah not disappointed I mean, Gwen Stacy's world, which is kind of what we commenced, is the thing that I probably put me at ease. That I was just like, oh, we are actually in the hands of something quite exciting. Because I suppose the thing with her animation is that she, because in the first film, the sort of twist is that she's a spider person. She has to kind of be able to fit in seamlessly with Miles' world in terms of style. But then when we get into her world, we see this kind of wholly distinct aesthetic with uh, the way that kind of everything is realized around her. And it's watercolors and blurring and this you know and um i don't even know you i mean you know more about animation than me what is what what was it i was just like i like it <laughs> they talked about they talked a lot about like kind of using these kind of watercolor simulator tools so they're just like painting these backgrounds but i think it's just like kind of how the color in gwen's world like overwhelms everything else like the all the details are very blown out like you'll see these very kind of vague pencily lines but it uses color as an emotive tool over everything else there's very naturalistic acting of the characters going on in the middle of it but the kind of key to those sequences is that a very gentle watercolor and also these sort of um, very rough and textured brush strokes in the background that sort of fade out into nothing. It's all just, it's very purely expressive in a way that Miles' world like is rooted a little bit more in photorealism, whereas Gwen's is just like this kind of very strongly abstract shape to it and this very strong color direction. And that's just my impression of it. I can't remember if it's like kind of, it's sort of this weird halfway mix between like paint on glass and watercolor stuff. It just is very pleasing to look at. It feels often where like the watercolor is still kind of wet as well, because you get like the, I, I guess it's animated to be running at certain sequences and stuff, especially with like, there's a, there's a sequence um, towards the end, I think with Gwen and her dad, Captain Stacy, I presume is his name. And the, the back, the backdrop of the watercolors is kind of like running with, the uh, with the animation and I thought that was a really affecting tool for for like um for, for, for that conveying the emotionality of the scene that flow to it is really satisfying I think very it's just yeah very emotive in a different way to how the other worlds express the kind of interiority of the characters I think it was just that thing where it's like all of the backgrounds are working in concert with the acting to get the film's themes across on a kind of a wider scale it's so it's I think they kind of married the narrative so well to what they're doing visually here in that like Miles is now having an identity crisis and so of course you have a film that is split between like four different aesthetic palettes and I think it's stuff like that which helped the film weather a lot of the rockier patches for me in terms of the writing I think the first half is a lot more focused than the second because the second feels like it's kind of pulling in a lot of stuff I think it's a little bit baggy I don't think it like falls on its face or anything I just think that it's processing a lot of different things in a way that doesn't feel quite as sharp as the first 45 minutes or so of the film but I think it weathers that one through its visual storytelling and to just because it keeps it gra very grounded in character. This film's emerging in a landscape where not only is it less, slightly less one of a kind, um, which is a good thing because it's kind of lit a fire under a lot of American animators and sort of given everyone this license to experiment. Like it's like uh, everyone realizes that crowds will eat this up. It's not too weird for anybody. So a lot of films are playing with not the same, but similar tools. So it's coming out in an environment where one, it's not maybe not quite the novelty that it used to be. And two, where the very comic booky idea of multiverses is now played out as like this sort of corporate opportunism. And like, it's more of an opportunity to have different properties standing in a room together rather than what it is here, which is a chance to have a character literally find themselves across every possible iteration of what they could be and measure themselves against that it's ba it's based in character and a drive to make something new rather than hey we can put all these things that people like in one place and they're gonna buy it like <laughs> it's it's 
it doesn't have any of that cynicism even though it's like this could be like the biggest like fucking toy sales opportunity on the face of the earth but it doesn't feel like that to me well that's the thing i think because it's so centrally character driven the fan service doesn't irk you it's like when you watch something like um i was on the pod for doctor strange the multiverse of madness right there's that scene with john krasinski coming in as mr fantastic everything that is just marvel flexing there the ip that they've acquired in the last five years right from the fox merger or the fox acquisition sorry but but here you know, it's even even when you have ex redacted person popping up for five to ten seconds who is a familiar face to comic book nerds. You know, it's it, it, it's nice garnish as opposed to being the the driving force behind it. And you know, the, even me, you know, I've 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 ridden a lot around how tired I am of of this kind of of the uh, of the toy smashed together IP machine as it has kind of crunched on over the last three or four years. Yeah, I, I didn't find it to be a distraction. I was, I was just so um, immersed and uh, you know engaged with uh, with Miles's personal narrative and his 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 character that you know the, those things don't don't stand in the way of that. So I'm quite happy for the fans to have their fun at the same time. I think it's because like the multiverse stuff is just part of the film's philosophy that it's not about adapting moments from comic book it's about adapting mood and that's present in how it uses like onomatopoeia like you know written sound effects that appear on screen like half toning like the little dots that shade people like these things are what it loves about comic books it doesn't love the potential for a story that people recognize it is not interested in being something that people recognize on so many different levels it wants to be something new miles pretty much says that himself in the film but yeah, it's just like that it's not interested at all in delivering familiarity like comic book movies are so kind of determined to do. There's something fine about nostalgia. It's kind of what I like about the Sam Raimi movies. But with this one, it kind of leverages that on a textural level. Like you're looking at like the sensation of flipping through pages. Like it's in the animation. Like as a quick sidebar, it's very... Uh, one thing I really liked about the first one is that it got so many different people who don't really engage with this stuff on a technical level talking about being animated on twos because it was so striking and everyone's just like what is happening here what is that and then everyone's just like ah yeah see so it's everyone's animated at 12 frames a second instead of 24 and everyone just like knows this now because of this film if not on like a verbal level they know it on an instinctual level they know why these things are happening and they're thinking about why animation is working on the level that it does and that's what's so great about Spider-Verse as a comic book movie, that it's using all of these things as an opportunity to, like, I don't know, open up two different mediums to people, like, and what is enjoyable about them, and not just, like, I don't know, mining it for stuff. It's the texture and the vibe that is, like, what you called the garnish, rather than, like, I don't know, John Krasinski showing up for whatever reason. Yeah, it does seem it's it's ridiculous to me that we're still in this kind of state of animation as the lesser. I do remember I spoke I interviewed the Amy Pascal a while back who produced she's produced every single Spider-Man film going back to the Raimis. She gets so annoyed when there's kind of speculation about like is a superhero movie or we're going to finally win an Oscar? And she's like one did. Why are we thinking this of this is a lesser category? Because this is just to me these uh, these are my favorite superheroes films I think generally now of all time you know this is so much more intelligent than most of these live action things and in a way that sort of it gets into almost like satire in some way where I felt like in some ways the film is speaking about itself being underappreciated and like when the first one came out it being seen as kind of the underdog and like oh Miles Miles gets an animated film rather than a live action one and that sort of they kind of he gets the lesser thing and he actually is so much better than that and the film was so much better than that and yes I mean I am not quite in your level of expertise, Campbell, but I do feel like this is a good... (laughs) I do... I No, I do feel that, like, we're kind of getting some respect on on animation's name with things like this because it's so patently better than, like, a friggin'... What did we review last time, Jack? Was it Doctor Strange? Yeah, well, I mean, one of of the ones that I thought was uh, Multiverse of Madness... But yeah, no, I, I think if I, if I, if I may, because we're being so um, wonderfully abusive and um, there are superlatives flying all over the place, um, that's understandable because it's a wonderful picture relative to the superhero machine. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm similar to, to Layla. I'm not so much an animation expert as Campbell. Let's just call him an expert in like, animation a lot. from embarrassment. Right? <laughs> yeah, that man is going like, to animate himself into, into a movie or something to escape reality. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh, 
I I did feel as though it was felt strangely truncated. Um, I spoke to Cam about this after the screening last night. We bumped into each other, and I I actually had forgotten until just before the screening that it was meant to be part one of a two-parter. And, and Cam made this point last last night, and I, I think it was a very astute one, where, you know, it, it feels as though they had too much material for one feature, so then they expanded out to two parts. I don't know if this is actually what happened. And then, it know, is. So, so, so yeah, so the first part kind of feels like it ends on a really abrupt note. But I did, I did kind of walk out and I was thinking about it. I was like, it doesn't feel like there's really enough material here for an entire extra feature. Like, it feels like there's a third act or, or a final act. It doesn't feel like there's enough here for another two and a half hours. Do you know what I mean? I don't think no. it needs another two and a half hours, because two and a half hours is pretty long for an animated movie anyway. We could get a 90-minute Spider-Verse 3, and that would be pretty great. <laughs> it would yeah. zoom along. Yeah, but, no, that, that would be fantastic. It's just to feel strange to split it and split it like that, like to kind of like bisect I think so. it evenly. In the time that I spoke to you about it, I've both come around on it, and I think some problems with it have become a little bit clearer to me. I think my main structural issue is that the back half is generally just a lot baggier and that it's in the end where it kind of ends up focusing a bit towards a point so it's just very bewildering bewildering and then it sort of peters out i think quite gently to this conclusion it's not so much an abrupt ending as in there's not really an ending but i think it does do well to hit this kind of final like drum solo sort of moment where everything's crescendoing and you're surprised by this big thing that's happening i think as far as cliffhangers go it's a really good one i think there's there's something that is kind of i don't know the act of the cliffhanger is an inherently frustrating one because you're just like oh man like I got to see what happens next. And I think I was kind of, I had a lot of that tied up in my frustration with the kind of part one label. I've kind of come around on it since. Watching it a second time kind of let me see it on its own terms because I was just like, all right, I know this beat is happening now. And watching it back, I'm like, it's maybe not as sudden as it felt first time around. I do think that it's hard to evaluate this as a complete thing because it's the story's not complete. There's a lot yeah, of thematic threads that are like left open, except. They, it does have a sort of ending through Gwen. So if you're searching for something conclusive with Miles, that's not happened yet, which I think is kind of the frustrating part because he's like, you, you kind of see him as the centre of the picture. So seeing him not really find any conclusion there can kind of be like, ah, all right. But I think the film is pretty smart in at least hooking that as... A friend of mine said, like, Gwen kind of bookends the movie as a complete story about this sort of parental angst that I will only refer to vaguely here. I don't know. The thing that unlocked this film for me was when I came out of the first screening is someone, some guy in an elevator just says to me, he's just like, it's The Matrix Reloaded. And I was just like, oh, yeah, it is. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, both of these, like, looked at the success of their predecessor and they were just like, all right. We're not doing that again. <laughs> and they have both of those kind of central characters struggling with their status as this iconic figure. Like Neo uh, is basically the messiah. And then he realizes that the system is built around that idea and that he's got to break it. Miles is not doing the same thing here. He doesn't like kind of fly through the air in the same way that Neo does or like bend time and space. I mean, he kind of does a little bit. But yeah, but yeah. Uh, the, po the point <laughs> is that they're these similarly like meta looks at themselves that build it into this very compelling character drama. And they're both like these middle chapters that have a little bit of bagginess to them. I feel a little bit more forgiving of it than I did literally last night. I feel like my thoughts on this film are going to keep ping ponging around until the third part comes out. Um, as a rogue thought, I do love about this film that Miles feels like he's been around for a really long time. Because when you look at the publication history, he has been a character for maybe 10 years, which is like less than a sixth of the time that the other Spider-Man has been around. But through how these movies use like classic comic book language and that very like, like the mismatched tones and print errors of like archaic comic book printing processes that's all like on screen it makes him feel like he's been part of these things forever and i think it's really interesting to kind of make these both of these films an examination of his place in the sort of wider landscape of superhero films as well as like an identity crisis for himself and then on, a, on another like kind of rogue note why are all the black superheroes electricity guys <laughs> um, i was just like i was thinking about this i was literally standing in a comic book shop before i went to go and see this the second time around and i picked up a compendium of milestone media milestone media is basically a an african-american founded comic book label that started in the 90s because Dwayne mcduffie and christopher priest and a bunch of other black writers would just be like we need more black superhero characters so they went to DC and they founded this label. And there's a character who is designed as to be like Spider-Man. Look him up. He's a character called Static. He has a great animated series called Static Shock. And he's an electricity boy. And then it's come back around and then Miles Morales comes along. And he's kind of like Static. And I'm just like, there's some kind of feedback loop going on here. 
I've talked too long about this. <laughs> no, it'd be interesting because is it Tanahasi Coates is doing the new Black Superman? If he turns out to be Electricity Superman, then I think we're really we're really up for a think piece on this. What's going on here? Is this a Labour thing? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I apologise. I, I must say, I apologise for denigrating you as a fast and furious aficionado because you have <laughs> expertise. Jesus Christ! I feel like I've talked to expertise. I feel like I've talked more about comics this time around. I was going to say to make myself feel better, I'm just imagining myself as Homer in the back of the car shouting "nerd." <laughs> <laughs> you you have permission to do that. I've talked too much. <laughs> it's so wonderful listening to to you talk about it. So uh, with so so much elegance and deafness, it's really uh, really really know your shit, which is good. You're on the Little White Lights podcast. <laughs> uh, you're being too nice to me. It's making me feel funny. But Jack, for you, that kind of Empire Strikes Back was the sort of thing that I referenced in terms of like, you know, this is middle chapter, not a definitive ending. Next one, I believe we're getting in March. So, I mean, we will be getting it very soon. We do find out what happens. Like, did that kind of work against it for you? The kind of, you know, kind of leaving it kind of like to this to be continued sort of point? I think they um, made it a bit more explicit in the marketing to remind those of us who haven't seen the, like, the first one since it came out that this was part one of the part two um, sequel. I did, um, you know, apart from, apart from it feeling like it was a little bit less satisfying because it, it didn't give us the kind of like the, the conclusion that maybe some people are craving going into this. No, I, I, I mean, because like Cam said, you know, I, I don't think it can really, the, its merits can be properly adjudicated and evaluated until the, the second part comes out. So I, re- I, I do really look forward to, I mean, like, like you, Layla, like I'm of the kind of the comic book movie industrial complex. These are some of my favourite ones. Um, the first one I actually didn't see, theatrically, I think I saw it on, maybe it must have been on Netflix or something, like a year or two after it came out originally. Uh, and this, this is just going to sell like gangbusters in the box office. Like, my God, I haven't seen the initial projections for this opening weekend, but... I think that the first one, it, like, and like you do retro- retroactively imagine that made like loads and loads and loads of money because it's become so popular. It's kind of hit the zeitgeist so much and obviously won an Oscar. But no, this, this, you know, see it like making like 80, 90, 100 mil the first opening weekend. I hope that there aren't projections out there on Box Office Mojo that just like bite me in the ass there. Word of mouth's going to be so strong as well. Jurassic World, I just found out, made a, over a billion dollars. So really, if there's any justice in the world. But I've got to ask you, Jack, also, we kind of get our little London lad in this because we got uh, Hobie Brown, Mr. Oh, yeah. Spider-Punk. Yeah, yeah so, <laughs> thoughts, it's, it's, it's thoughts on him? Yeah. I, I love, I was, yeah, I do, I, I love Danny Clear. I think he's a wonderful actor. I was, you know, I was kind of waxing eloquent about him when he came because he was one of the three people. I think it was him and uh, you know, some of the other guys from the cast who, who came in at the beginning. Um, Hayley Steinfeld and Shamik Moore. Hayley Steinfeld and Shamik Moore, thank you. I was like waxing eloquent to my boyfriend who I was watching with, you know, about Judas and the Black Messiah and, and uh, Widows and everything, how much I love them. I didn't think the voice performance was great. I don't know if it was the sound mix in the screening, but I, I, I thought it was kind of flat. And it felt like an actor who hadn't done much voice work before. I don't, I'm not very uh, familiar. No, I'm not I feel the opposite. With... Really? Oh, I thought he was so good. Oh, yeah, highlight for me. He was super really? expre- he's super expressive. I think I genuinely think he just got drowned out in how awful the sound mix was in the cinema. Okay. Like, um... so, for, so for context, I should say for people listening, um, when we watched it at the screening yesterday, they had a DJ on in the pre-show, and we... We kind of, we think, we're not certain, but we think that when they, you know, changed the channels over to the, to the, to the, to the screening, um, it must, there must have been something that got messed up in the mix or something because the sound was really poor in our, in our screening. Basically, like, the narration shifted really far across to, like, the left for me. It, there was a weird echo and everything got drowned out. It's not, it's not that, I don't think that it's not, he's not engaged or expressive. I think it's just because he's, his character is very relaxed, which I think is a very fun like portrayal of like a punk anarchist character he's like he's not angry he's just cool and he's like very casually anti-establishment even just um again just bringing it back to the animation for a second his character just looks like a walking cut like someone cut a picture out of a zine and had it start walking around and i think that weird like flatness to him and that constant shifting like it's very anarchic in itself and really fun and i think kaluuya captures that energy so well uh his little um here's my story intro is just so fun and later on it comes with a little editor's note which i thought was a really fun expansion on comic book stuff in the first one where it explains to the audience what cockney rhyming slang is um yeah 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 because yeah his background is that he models he's been in a band but he doesn't like bands because that's kind of a label 
He's a uh, anti-authoritarian. He's into performance art and also um, like taking down the police. And it's just like within that like 30 seconds, I was like, I will follow you to the ends of the earth, Hobie Brown. Uh, okay, I will, I will concede that it may be a product of the terrible yes. sound mix that we experienced yesterday. That's such that a I, shame. Yeah, I looked down on because I do love him so much and he's always such a highlight of the films that he's in so yeah maybe I should uh, I'll at least I'll at least wind it down until I've seen the second one if we can if we can issue a clarification <laughs> later on and an apology well I mean Cam, Cam is the person to know because we uh, I watched it with him at a little Sony screening room a couple of days ago and he saw this so you you can confirm that perhaps Jack did not get the proper audio experience Definitely not. I think uh, I'm a little, it's a little sad about this one in that I feel like there was so many people at this like massive combo, like premiere influencer media screening that the UK are going to get, a, as they described it. Yeah. Like everyone's going to get, the, people are going to get like a bad impression of this film or at least a slightly hampered one, literally just because they couldn't hear what the hell was going on. Like people were saying to me, just being like, I didn't catch what Gwen was saying for like the first 10 minutes, like just completely obscured by this muddy audio and it's it sucks because it's just out of the filmmaker's hands at that point and it's very fun being like definitely advocating for the cinematic experience like go and see this big and loud and then you see it big and loud and you can't hear anything it's so it's it's big big and whimpering yes jack do you want to go first in terms of your scores in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect and the in retrospect is now informed by the fact that you did not get the best sound yes no 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 i won't i won't bring that to my into my equation, I'd go with fours across the board. I'd say I, I think um, in terms of my enjoyment score, I lean towards three maybe. But I will go with fours across the board. I'll be I, I've been won over by Cam's wonderful and effusive kind of um, breakdown of the uh, the film's technical elements. So funny because yeah. I was the negative one the other day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I had a I had a great time with it. You know, it's, it's, it's someone who is less of a noted animation aficionado. Um, kind of, I feel like it kind of like fulfills that, uh, that, that, that kind of scratch that itch um, for the moment. And it's, uh, it's, it's always nice to do something novel with a genre that's kind of being beaten into the ground. Um, I'm talking about superhero movies, not animation, when I, when I talk about that, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, good um, good stuff. Really good stuff. And sorry to Daniel Pula. Animation expert Campbell A. Campbell. Uh, you're using this to torture me. <laughs> Chinese uh, water torture. <laughs> what, what are your scores? Anticipation 5, because I kind of just fell head over heels for the last one, which only went up in my estimation since the first time I saw it. I think when I scored it for Little White Lies, I, I gave it like the soft 5, <laughs> like, where I was like, uh, it's a five for enjoyment and a four in retrospect. And then I think the four went up over time because I was like, oh, I didn't need to be cagey about this one. It, it really did rock. So five for anticipation because I was really, really excited. I'm going to go four for enjoyment. Similar to Jack in that it's a, something of a low four because there are bits in the film where I was like a little bit uncertain about the structure and there are some cameos in it like live action ones that I'm just like, eh, I don't like this. So there's a little, little frustrations that I think kept it, like held it back from being like kind of unabashed, like blown away by it. In retrospect, a higher four <laughs> because uh, I don't know, man, it, it rocks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 I kind of felt myself like slightly resisting it when I was watching it because I kind of couldn't actually fully accept that something like this would be quite as, as clever as it was but yeah I'm I'm at a 455 I think it was absolutely wonderful I think I was probably yes at that same sort of soft five with you that you would have given the last one if you do the five in enjoyment and four in retrospect but the more I've thought about it the more kind of themes I pick out and the more kind of works as commentary on like the state of cinema or like oh can you truly have free will in a world where destiny exists and those sorts of stuff it's just it's just so clever and even though it is part one of a part two I really really had a great time and I tell you since starting this podcast i've had to watch a lot of superhero films that i otherwise really would not have bothered with uh so my marvel fatigue is like like marvel coma level at this point and yes this was just like wonderfully wonderfully refreshing to me this stuff is like water in a desert for me i think like my score liable to change until the next one comes out but they don't make them like this enough. <laughs> they don't make them like they used to. Uh, <laughs> five years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next up, reality. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A former American intelligence specialist is given the longest sentence for the unauthorized release of government information to the media about the Russian interference in the 2016 United States election via an email operation. So Jack, this is quite a strange film. I mean, not only is it kind of based on a play, but it's also kind of based on real life events. Like, did you kind of vibe with this rather strange tone of uh, dramatization of, I don't know, I guess it's it's dramatization of like actual dialogue that happened in this bizarre investigation? Yeah, the verbatim stuff, I really, I, I did really chime with it. I think it's one of those chamber pieces that kind of lives and dies on the, on the strength of the lead. And Sydney Sweeney is such a, I don't know if um, listeners would have seen her in things like The White Lotus and more notably Euphoria, in which plays Cassie and has these wonderful breakdown moments. And here, you know, she's kind of operating on a different plane. Like, it's very much more pulled back and um she's um like like as you as you know the uh, the scripts were based into these uh, recordings um were in relation to um a whistleblowing um, leak to the intercepts and the fbi who went and interrogated the actually named reality winner and uh, and yeah no I, I i thought it really worked for me i think the direction from tina sata um you know kind of her background in theater kind of came through but there was this kind of uh, formal dexterity, like it's a really interesting formal exercise in the sense that, you know, you, you feel the claustrophobia of reality as she's being interrogated by these two FBI handlers, right? These two kind of bumbling guys, one of them's a, a daddish type, the other guy's this like big muscular brute. So it's playing a lot with gender and the power dynamics of gender, like one of them's occupying the father role and being kind of patronizing with her. The other guy is this kind of in, like this intimidating, sorry, like muscular biggin. Um, so it's playing a lot with, with that. And yeah, no, I, I was really won over. I think it captures a really terrifying mood. It almost lapses into horror territory at some points. I think it, it, it both was, you know, the kind of like the overreach and the, the fear of um, state apparatus and also just like as a as a as a as a piece about um one person being cornered about the and that kind of individual terror i i was i was a uh, i was a big fan i really was animation expert Amberley cambage <laughs> sorry <you> animation <laughs> <laughs> yes leaving the world of animation for this film i mean like were you kind of enjo- did you enjoy being grounded in reality no i didn't get it nobody was a drawing so it took me right out of the movie <laughs> um, i mean i suppose you can call it voice acting oh my god anyway um actually no i was fully immersed in this because on her fridge there's a little fridge magnet of nausicaa from nausicaa of the valley of the wind a studio ghibli movie bang <laughs> anyway um, wow oh yeah she's a reality winner gosh. is a hayao miyazaki fan <laughs> It's a very important detail. I think there's some moments where the adherence to transcript did become a little bit overbearing in its like insistence that like this is a this is all real. Like it's just like when you have that at the opening, I think you can kind of trust your audience to understand that what follows is you know uh, as close to 
what you assume is reality as possible so to speak so those kind of intrusions of little like kind of waveforms and like documents the documents less so i think the waveform stuff was a little bit silly to me but i think sydney sweeney gives a kind of very involved performance in a way that kind of weathers all of that anyway i was thinking about the arbor a lot while it was on because cleo barnard i think that's the name of the director of the arbor basically had actors lip syncing to real voiceover and while this isn't quite on that level i found it really interesting as a sort of act of reenactment um and how it uses that perspective to um point us at not just like kind of frustration at the implicit threat of the agents like just all me- all of these very like towering men like kind of very quietly intimidating her but also like as the film points towards like the uh, media outlet that kind of very irresponsibly like burned her as a source uh, not through not, maybe not through intention but just through like a complete mishandling of like Jenna protecting an anonymous source it's just like when you have those end cards showing you what a massive fuck up it was combined with um, Sweeney's very like I don't know it's very it's a very terrifying performance because it's just like someone who knows that they're truly fucked but um like being caught in that moment with her for like in real time basically i think amplifies the impact of those final moments where it's just like this is all just because someone kind of forgot to cross their t's and dot their i's like that stuff i found very compelling i thought at for a minute that the title was a double entendre about it just being like it's like real life and i imagine there's a little bit of that but it's also just in the fact that her name is reality so i'm just like oh okay never mind i mean that's that's uh, just kind of crazy isn't it what a crazy coincidence <laughs> like, yeah so they, they yeah. stumbled across a, a winner <laughs> <laughs> no that wasn't I, intentional i swear to god I hate you and i hate that deeply with my soul jack you want to put some scores on this uh little terrifying document of the state of the world I, I guess it was like a fall in anticipation because I'd heard such good things about it from Sundance and I didn't see it at Sundance. Had, had I had the opportunity to see it at Sundance, then that obviously would be lower because you know, the, the, the big draw would be Sydney Sweeney on paper, I suppose. Four and then another four, I guess four across the board again. Uh, yeah, I, 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 it really uh, is like a, it's a fall exercise above all. And I, I, I think actually like the, the talking point will be Sydney Sweeney, but Sydney it's Tina Satis or Sam. I, 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 I apologise there if I'm mispronouncing her surname, but her direction is really fantastic. I love the claustrophobic close-ups. This kind of like the the, um, the visual language is using to communicate and convey the claustrophobia of, of reality in that in that setting, and the kind of like the that fearsomeness is really strong. And like I say, like the, the way that it plays with genre and it keeps you on edge. Like the, the, I'm, I'm now going back into a review, but the score works so well and meshes so well with the, with the visual language. And yeah, you're just, you're constantly waiting for like one of the two guys that she's being interrogated by to like, to, to, to leap up like a viper and, 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 and ensnare her. And it, and it happens and it kind of like, it, it, it plays them off as these, or it plays one of them off at least as this kind of like bumbling fool. But then he's the guy invariably who kind of like, who, who notices the little pratfalls in her, argument and in her in her recollection of events Campbell what about you scores it's four for anticipation because I was excited to see more from Sydney Sweeney as a performer only like passingly familiar with her as I, I don't know you just kind of constantly see against my will like images from euphoria and stuff like that but she was fun in the voyeurs so I was just like when I saw like she was doing something a bit more like austere I was interested so four for that Enjoyment of four as well. I think the tension is really it's 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 almost like stomach churning how awful some of the stuff feels. Like where you you like Jack said, like you're waiting for this kind of coiled viper to get at her, and she is as well, and it traps you in this moment with her in this very stripped down room. Like it's just like there's nothing in the room that they're in, and it's somehow she it's like she has this interrogation room in her own house, <laughs> which is so surreal, and just being like kind of having your personal space invaded like that and being very involved in that sense of invasion is it does a lot it did a lot for me in terms of uh, my appreciation for the film in retrospect i think maybe like a three but for the record it's uh, like a high three <laughs> just because i did think some of uh, i liked tina satter's i think that i say satter i don't know i hope i'm getting that right but i appreciated her direction when it was more focused on like kind of being in like the subjective experience of being reality winner in that moment less so when it's kind of being very playful about like ooh, like this name and this person is redacted like all that stuff i thought was a little bit silly 
but otherwise i think very effective in telling like a pretty stripped back and very direct version of the story it wants to tell i think in a way that i enjoyed yeah we we truly live in um very scary and very stupid times and i felt like this beautifully captured that but we need to move on to film club next up it's paprika When a machine that allows therapists to enter patients' dreams is stolen, all hell breaks loose. Only a young female therapist, Paprika, can stop it. So, Cam, I understand that you actually had the wonderful joy of being booked on this podcast and having already seen the film club film, so you had less work to do in preparation. I watched it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I ha- always have time for Satoshi Kon. He's one of my favourite filmmakers, like, of all time. Maybe a little bit, a little, little bit of that is because he has, uh, unfortunately, has a very digestible filmography because of his premature death from pancreatic cancer in 2010 so it's horrible that we didn't get more films from him but it also means that it's very it's a very manageable catalog to get into so i watch his stuff quite a lot so going back to this was no problem for me i don't really know where to begin with this (laughs) just because it's one of those ones where i could be very breathlessly talking about it for ages and also because i don't really know where to start but it's sort of this culmination of all of his work to this point. A lot of his films are, funnily enough, inspired by the novel that this is based on. Like, he is a massive fan of uh, Yasutaka Tsutsui uh, and has said so as much in the past. So he's want- he wanted to make Paprika since, like, 1998, after his first film, Perfect Blue. So you can see the inspiration of Paprika in basically all of his work up to that point. And it creates this very interesting continuity of theme and style across all of his films like all of them are like constantly bouncing between kind of illusion and reality all of them are sort of concerned with uh, like cinephilic history and like how it reflects on memory on public identity and all of this stuff and paprika is unwittingly like a conclusion to all of that it quite literally has like a moment where one of the main characters ends up with a cinema that is showing all of Satoshi Kon's films. It sort of acts as this unwitting eulogy to his work. So on that note, it's like both a very exciting and also sort of melancholic watch for me. I'm always happy to rewatch it. I don't think it's his best film. I think that honor still lies with Millennium Actress, which is funnily enough a movie that got this movie made because the author of the book Paprika saw Millennium Actress and he's just like, yeah, you're the guy. But it's, you know, it's it's Satoshi Kon. (laughs) It's like, even on his worst day, he's one of the best animators of all time. Jack, was this your first time coming to Paprika? Would you agree? This is uh, something from one of the best animators of all time. As said by animation expert Campbell A. Campbell. Well, um... As uh, I think we might have already covered on an episode of the pop before, animation expert is not a prefix that you could apply to Jack King. Um, so it's actually the first time I've seen it. I watched it last night after Spider-Verse. I loved it. I was fantastic. And, um, you know, I, I, I was immediately doing a Wikipedia dive into Con's filmography and kind of like to going to see what I can kind of lap up um, and reading into the kind of like, the funny apocryphal stories around like, I've not seen Perfect Blue, but I, I was reading about how Darren Aronofsky was like accused of like, not maybe like, maybe he'd call it homage for Wrecking the Dream, but it was like accused of like ripping it off basically. Same kind of um, accusations being levied um, uh, Christopher Nolan, I guess more famously for Paprika with Inception. It was the thing that I my, I watched it with, with my boyfriend and, I, and he'd already seen it and I turned around to him halfway through the movie and I was like this is just Inception isn't it Christopher Nolan needs to be thrown in jail and obviously I, I, I as we, we, we kind of covered before we started, we started recording I think that Cam would repost that um, but the similarities are really obvious but coming back to Marika the animation style is really gorgeous I mean I, I, I feel quite liberated that I can speak about this from a place of complete naivety and, uh, and lesser expertise than I'd ordinarily like to approach it with but <laughs> I, I thought it was I thought it was really stunning and fun and I've been sold on it as this kind of like quite harrowing psychological exercise. Um something that made so maybe I was expecting something a little bit more challenging. <laughs> it, I I, uh, I I actually thought it was relatively accessible as a newcomer. I think it's you obviously can't really take your eyes off screen, like not so, not just for the subtitles, but also for the fact that you know things are changing so much within the narrative that you have to really keep up with it. It's not certainly not something that, as with any cinema, you shouldn't be watching using your phone at the same time. Um, but it's certainly not something to have on in the background, and it was just really cool. And I think it like it just emanates of like a lot of um, Hollywood 
energy as well you've got like like the the reference points to to, to hollywood cinema like i think the uh you you've got like there's there's a bit of like a roman holiday billboard and one of the dreams that the protagonist has and everything yeah i i i i feel like i'm 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 maybe speaking in broad strokes um but i i can only say that i really really it's like um, it's funny that you said that you heard that it was like very like challenging material because i think that that kind of honor lies primarily with the work he did had preceding this paranoia agent which was a tv series which plays on a lot of the same stuff but with a darker tone or perfect blue this is kind of his fun one <laughs> and i think he intended it as his fun one where he's just like i've got all of this stuff out of my system so now let's kind of rock with this there's a great book about satoshi Khan's work called uh, the illusionist uh, written by andrew osmond who just knows this stuff like backwards and forwards and there's a very fun little anecdote in there that the actor that plays the scientist is the voice actor for Amuro Ray, the protagonist of Mobile Suit Gundam. And he's meant to be, in the film, Paprika, he's this very childlike figure, like a man who is sort of just in this, like, perpetual adolescence like he literally turns into a child's toy at one point and apparently during according to the illusionist during like the recording process the voice actor was just like wait satoshi khan is making me play amuro ray again like this child like this kind of childhood hero of his and apparently khan admitted to it and so it's like there's all of this stuff where he's just kind of being very playful um with the form like that opening sequence is just like all timer stuff in how it's like projecting like the credits onto different surfaces and paprika is like bouncing from the real world to kind of just like pop art and billboards and all this stuff how it, how she's like angrily turning down people and her like annoyance is refracted across a bunch of mirrors i think it's just like a, a really like delightful combination of how he just like loves motion being carried across time and space like he's very uh, editing is such a strong part of his work like con is very famous for like having very controlled storyboarding so like all of his stuff is very detailed from like a moment he's just like like started planning it and like that sense of control is just like translates as stuff i don't know like you you'll move you've seen it you're like move, movement carries and like it'll be a match cut to something else and it just like has this constant like domino effect of like, people moving into different places and that works so well in like a dream context and that opening i think is just such an amazing way to just jump right in like it's just very joyful about the expressive potential of animation to just do anything i think it was a talking point of former host of this podcast and friend of mine michael leader he has a podcast called Ghibliotech where he did a little series about con and i think one of the talking points was how horrible the uk advertisements for paprika were where they had this tagline it's like this is your brain on anime <laughs> like it's <laughs> where it's meant to be this like mind-blowing experience but it, like i think that it sells it in a very different way and that the film very is just like very joyful and light even if it is dealing with a lot of very threatening stuff there's like there's there's kind of like strange metaphysical sexual assault like in the latter half but i don't think con uses that stuff lightly i think he's always been very interested in the subjective experience of women and i think he does that I am going to wrap up the podcast by doing our one final thing and ask you for a non-movie recommendation. So, Jack, do you want to go first? What is your non-movie that you're going to suggest people? Well, last time, last time, I damned Arsenal second place by saying that I was really enjoying Arsenal season. You know, thanks, Jack. So, thanks, thanks, <laughs> me. I'm I'm very sorry to Mikhail Saka and everybody else involved. Um, Mikel Arteta. Uh, my apology will be forthcoming. I, at the moment, I'm starting to pull back the years with this one. I have been a Fallout aficionado for a very long time. I love my video game series. Very quick context: it's a post-apocalyptic role-playing game. Um, Bethesda won the right, or bought the rights of um, in the early 2000s. They made these 3D games: Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, Fallout 4. Um, it's in like a retro-futuristic, post-apocalyptic America after a nuclear war, and you know, sometime in the near future. Um, hopefully uh, will not uh, be our reality um, anytime soon. And uh, I've been playing the original isometric RPGs on PC. So I've been playing Fallout 2. Um, it's uh, really fantastic. The writing's excellent. It's really funny, quite depressing, uh, really, really hard in the way that video games in the late 90s didn't hold your hand. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm having, I'm having, having already, you know, I, I, I just, it was just one of those things. It's strange where I, I put, you know, over a thousand hours into these, these newer video games and I've never played the OGs. 
So here I am now playing the MG stuff. Having like already, you know, watched so many lore videos on YouTube and stuff and like watched Let's Plays and this kind of stuff, but now probably getting my hands on it and having a great time. Resident gamer, Jack King. I do (laughs) worry though, given that last time you kind of, it feels like you cursed Arsenal and I'm taking that personally, that you've now, perhaps with that recommendation, condemned us to a Fallout style apocalypse. So yeah, sorry for the, sorry for the, things get real. (laughs) You know who to blame? I don't know how to follow that up. (laughs) Well guys, as, as the turtle sang, duck and cover and duck. And cover. You'll survive. You'll survive. You put your head down, cover your head. You know, the, the nuclear blast will not consume you and disperse your assets. I've seen threads. <laughs> I know otherwise. <laughs> threads. Let's not talk about Mick Jackson. <laughs> Let's not talk about threads. I, yeah, no, I, the Sheffield, what a place. Cam, what about you? What is your non movie? I truly don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> Instinct was pushing me towards recommending the new Legend of Zelda game, but that's not a recommendation because everyone is playing it. So I'm going to go with a comic book to keep in theme with the episode. Because sp- good Spider-Man stories are so hard to find nowadays, <laughs> there's gonna, I imagine there might be a lot of people who are like, oh, this makes me feel like what reading a Spider-Man comic. And then they'll go to the current run of Amazing Spider-Man and it's god-awful. So don't do that. Read Spider-Man Life Story by Chip Zdarsky. And it's like a, um, it's quite unique in that it's a chronological telling of like Peter Parker's life from starting in the 60s when he's a teenager and ending when he's an old man in the uh, 2000s. And it's very touching and a very nice encapsulation of the character in a way that I think, and gives him a sense of finality and like kind of completeness that the comics just kind of don't you don't get a chance to do it because you're constantly like rebooting on this like marvel comics sliding time scale where everyone's lived for 60 years but also it's only been like five uh, so having right. that actually like decompressed over decades is very interesting just a very good uh accessible spider-man comic don't read amazing spider-man <laughs> all, all, like all good like? stories have nuclear wars yeah we all know it's only a matter of time i was gonna say i remember when spider-man was in Fred's. great little cameo <laughs> Oh, well, what a note to end on. Don't you love having me on, Layla? Get in your shelters, everybody. <laughs> I do indeed. I'm, I'm descending into my vault as we speak. You know, and they're great stuff to entertain yourself. Dancing is the sort of world buns around you. Uh, so, yeah, if you've got thoughts on these films or the apocalypse, email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, A Legacy is Restored in Chevalier, and we're talking to its stars, Kelvin Harrison Jr. and Lucy Boynton. Two Lakota boys find their lives intertwine in War Pony, and for film club, Brian Gosling leads us down the Lost River. Thanks so much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Campbell A. Campbell, an animation expert, and Jack King. <laughs> the podcast is produced by TCO London, edited by Bob Stankus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 